You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Several years ago, I did an inductive study of the book of Leviticus. And I'll confess to you, I was a little apprehensive going into it, having started the book of Leviticus several times and never quite getting all the way through it. But as I worked my way through that study, the study constantly drew my attention to other passages of scripture that connected to what I was reading in Leviticus. I learned how certain Levitical laws related to the gospel and what Christ did for us on the cross. I discovered rich symbolism in the feasts, ways in which the festivals that were instituted in Leviticus pointed forward to the Messiah. For example, in the practice of the wave offering, the priest would hold up two loaves of bread, one in each each hand, and the loaves would be waved before the Lord, In so doing, the congregation would be reminded of God's promise to reconcile the two into one. Now at the time, that may have called to mind the enmity between Isaac and Ishmael or between Jacob and Esau. But for us and in the gospel, it would culminate in Christ offering salvation to Jew and Gentile alike and ultimately reconciling man to God. That study of Leviticus drove home for me how incredibly intricate and powerful the story of scripture is. In the Bible, God gives us the greatest story ever told. But the Bible is not just a good story. It is also a meta-narrative. A meta-narrative is a comprehensive account of all things, explaining the meaning and purpose of life. As J.R.R. Tolkien told C.S. Lewis before Lewis came to faith, the Bible is the one true myth. Now a myth is a traditional story explaining why things are the way they are. For example, there are myths explaining creation, the origin of planets and stars, seasons, fire, and various cultural practices. A myth's power is in its ability to explain aspects of reality. Now the story of scripture provides explanation for why the world and human beings are the way they are, but unlike other myths, the biblical story actually happened and is still happening. The biblical meta-narrative can be divided into four chapters, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In the creation chapter, God creates a very good world that displays his glory. And that very good creation is stewarded by the one being made in God's image, man. But man rebels against God and God's authority. And because of that rebellion, man fell from his place of intimacy with God. The original sin of man's rebellion then became part of human nature and persists to this day. Moreover, death and decay entered God's very good world and marred everything. Now in order to fix the fall, to break the power of sin and reconcile man to God, God's just wrath had to be satisfied. 
The wages of sin, death itself, had to be paid, but by one who wasn't subject to those wages. So in the redemption chapter of the biblical meta-narrative, God himself became a man in order to be the redeemer of God's creation. God, incarnate as the man Jesus Christ, paid the debt owed by humanity and destroyed death itself so that all of creation, including mankind, could be freed from its bondage to sin and death. And in the final chapter of God's story, he is restoring all things to the glory and perfection of the original creation. And he will bring that restoration to completion in the final revelation of a new heavens and new earth, where, as Revelation 21 states so captivatingly, the dwelling place of God will be with man. God will dwell with man, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. These are the chapters of the biblical meta-narrative, the grand arc of history, the one true myth. Story is the fabric of the reality in which we live, and that is why it is so powerful. Humans are drawn to and compelled by story because we are born into one. And we see the power of story in many modern myths. Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter, Star Wars, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. These titles present epic stories set in their own realities. In their scale and scope, they are, in a sense, fictional meta-narratives. The global reach and impact of these modern myths testify to the power of story, particularly meta-narratives. We also see the power of story on social media, where users are positioned as the authors of their own lives. Users make decisions about what to include and exclude on their feeds based on the story they want to tell about themselves and their lives. But the reality is that we don't author our own lives. We don't bring ourselves into existence, nor can we dictate everything that we experience in life. Neither are we the heroes of our own lives. We cannot save ourselves from pain, let alone from death. Our culture tells us, you do you, be your authentic self, march to the beat of your own drum, live your truth, define yourself and be the master of your own life. But scripture asserts a very different message and gives very different advice. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. All came from dust and all returned to dust. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Our culture's story and the story of scripture are fundamentally opposed. Culture says to seek comfort, wealth, power and prestige. Scripture says to seek God first, seek his kingdom first, find wealth in him, deny yourself, serve others, take up your cross. Based on the world's standards, God's story isn't very attractive because God's story neither denies the reality of suffering and struggle, nor does it tell us to try to escape or numb our pain. The year after I graduated from college was one of the most difficult in my life. I had spent four years working hard to earn two degrees and graduated with top honors. 
I had been accepted into several highly ranked grad programs for film, and I was convinced I would spend one last summer in Washington, D.C. with my friends from college, then move to Southern California for grad school. And it was not to be. Despite several dozen job applications I sent out for summer work, I only received one offer, a part-time internship that paid a stipend that wouldn't cover a month's worth of living expenses in D.C., let alone a whole summer. None of my applications resulted in full-time work, but I did have two part-time job offers in Asheville, North Carolina my hometown, where I graduated from high school and where my parents still lived. I could work at my mom's OBGYN practice and at my old church. It wasn't the summer that I had dreamed of, but it was better than nothing, and it would allow me to save a little bit of money before grad school, right? Wrong. I did live rent-free with my parents for a time, didn't have to pay for utilities, but neither did I receive any scholarship or grant funding for grad school, as I had expected. My only financing options were loans. I was looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt, more than a mortgage on a house, to essentially earn a piece of paper. I couldn't do it. So there I was, a college graduate twice over, living with my parents, working two part-time jobs that didn't require any particular educational background and certainly had nothing to do with my degrees, and I had no idea where my life was heading. I was stranded in a desert with no way to escape. And that season was incredibly painful. Suffering is inescapable in God's story and in the reality of our world. Suffering is a consequence of the fall, that second chapter in the biblical meta-narrative. Our culture says to avoid or escape suffering by whatever means. But in God's story, suffering has a purpose because of the chapter of redemption. God redeems suffering. He uses it for his glory and for our good. After all, he redeemed Christ's suffering on the cross to make reconciliation between God and man possible. Through that desert season after college, God brought me to a deeper experience of himself. He led me to a Bible study about Moses' 40 years in the desert tending Jethro's sheep. And Moses must have felt so alone and forgotten during that season. However, God was preparing him for miraculous work. Similarly, in my desert season, God was preparing me for what lay ahead. During that season, God gave me the opportunity to participate in a theatrical production of Godspell with an original third act that told the story of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Through that show and its many performances, I got to experience something of what the disciples must have experienced interacting with Jesus day to day. Night after night, I enacted the parables, the Last Supper, Christ's crucifixion, and his resurrection. And Jesus became so much more real to me. Through Godspell, I was able to experience just a bit of the beauty of God's story. And God is a master storyteller. He is attentive to detail and amazingly creative in the way that he crafts his story. Think about your own life. What details has God attended to in your story that show his glory and his fatherly compassion? 
One example in my own life was the semester that I studied abroad at the American University in Cairo. Before arriving, God had allowed me to secure an internship at the U.S. Embassy. I was to take classes in the early morning and late afternoon and work in between. So every day I needed to get from the apartment that the university placed me in, to campus, to the embassy, back to campus, then home to the apartment. Cairo is a city of over 20 million people and covers 175 square miles. By comparison, your county, Jessamine County, is 172 square miles. So Cairo covers more square footage than the entire county. The streets lack lane lines and operating traffic lights, so cars, trucks, vans, motorbikes, carts, horses, and bicycles all cram together in chaos. Only God's coordination of the details made that semester possible. Where most international students lived in a different sector of the city than where the university was located, I lived less than a mile away. I could walk to campus in less than 15 minutes. And the embassy was located between campus and my apartment. So no need to catch a cab every day, which in Cairo can be a life and death decision, or take a bus. I was able to walk everywhere I needed to go thanks to God's particular arrangement of the circumstances. God's attention to detail was on glorious display in my life and in the pages of Scripture. Although Scripture is functional in the sense of providing instruction for how to live, for example, the Ten Commandments and the letters in the New Testament, the Bible is not only or primarily functional. God didn't just give us a list of do's and don'ts. He gave us a story so that we would come to know and worship Him. As was read this morning, the purpose of our existence is to know, believe, and understand who God is. And as it says in the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So let's spend some time glorifying and enjoying God by digging into His story. In God's story, He reveals Himself. The Bible is God's self-revelation. Scripture is God-breathed, written by human hands under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As it says in Hebrews, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. All of scripture points to Jesus. As Alistair Begg so perfectly and eloquently stated, as we journey through the Bible, we recognize that Jesus did not arrive out of nowhere. From start to finish, the Bible is a book about him. If we take our eyes off Christ, then however well we know Scripture, we have missed its center, its key, and its hero. Think of Jesus launching his public ministry by referencing Isaiah's prophecy, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, and release from captivity to the prisoner. Jesus pointed to the Old Testament so that his audience would understand who he was. And later Jesus told a crowd, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet it is they that bear witness about me. And on the road to Emmaus, Jesus explained to two disciples all that scripture said concerning himself, beginning with Moses and proceeding through all the prophets. Can you imagine the story that Jesus was telling those disciples? 
I'll again use Alistair Begg's words. The purpose of every page of your Bible is for you to meet Jesus, to come to know him and to proclaim his great name all for his glory. So what are the ways in which scripture points to Christ? Well, scripture contains prophecies about Jesus from the very opening pages in Genesis 3.15 where God says, he, ultimately speaking of Jesus, shall crush the serpent's head and you shall bruise his heel. To Isaiah 9 where it says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The Bible also has passages foreshadowing Jesus, prefiguring his life as a man. Several psalms do this via the psalmist's voice, speaking in the first person about his own experience, yet in a way that later became true of Christ's experience. In a way, the psalmist's voice becomes the voice of Jesus. In Psalm 22, the psalmist writes, they have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Obviously that foreshadows the crucifixion. And in Psalm 69, the psalmist writes, it is for your sake, God, that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Several aspects of that psalm became true of Christ in his own life from being rejected by his brothers to being himself, he said, zeal for God's house had consumed him. And of course, when he was on the cross, he was given sour wine to drink. Scripture also includes accounts of human beings who in some way represent or parallel Jesus. You can think of Joseph, a brother betrayed who is later reconciled to his betrayers and saves them from death. Moses, a Hebrew boy who was rescued from the slaughter of other Hebrew boys and later was sent to redeem his people out of captivity and bondage. And David, a shepherd who becomes a king who later defeats all of Israel's enemies. The parallels in God's story reach a new level when we consider Noah and the Ark of the Covenant and Exodus and the Passover. Let's look at how both of these examples reveal God to us, particularly in the person of Jesus. So first with Noah and the ark, God had Noah build the ark as the vessel of salvation from God's judgment in the flood. Later, God instructs Israel to create the ark of the covenant as a vessel to contain his law and reminders of his faithfulness. The ark was ultimately spread with the blood of sacrifices offered to atone for Israel's sin. Yet over it all was the mercy seat. Jesus is for us the ark. He is the vessel of our salvation. He was the fulfillment of the law and prophets. And he is the perfect sacrifice through whom we receive mercy. We see similar parallels in Exodus and the Passover. In the Exodus, first, God defeats the Egyptian gods by sending plagues that specifically defy their pagan deities. For example, in the first plague, God turned the Nile into blood. Well, the Egyptians worshiped a trilogy of gods related to the Nile, but in this plague, Yahweh defeats them all. Similarly, in the second plague, God sent an invasion of frogs. The Egyptian goddess of birth, Hecate, had the head of a frog, 
But God uses this plague to turn the object of pagan worship into a curse. And in the last plague, God gives to Israel a ritual of protection that becomes instituted as an annual feast. This is the Passover. The night of the last plague, God instructs Israel to spread the blood of a sacrifice over their doors, claiming the protection of that sacrifice in order to be spared from God's judgment. The angel of God's judgment literally passes over the houses marked in blood. That practice was formalized as the Passover feast, involving a number of items symbolizing the experience of slavery in Egypt and God's mighty deliverance. For example, bitter herbs are eaten during the Passover meal to recall the bitterness of bondage. No yeast is eaten as yeast represents sin and its absence symbolizes God's purification of his people. A sweet dish called harosit is served as a reminder of the sweetness of redemption. And an egg is present on the table to call to mind the sacrifices offered at the temple, as well as the promise of new life given by the Messiah. In all of the richness and symbolism of the Passover, we see the creativity and attention to detail of our great God. This is a master storyteller at work. But it gets even better when we consider how the Passover pointed to and culminated in Jesus. Just a week ago, we celebrated Monday Thursday, remembering how during his last Passover meal, Jesus identified himself with the broken bread and the cup of wine passed during the feast. It would be his body sacrificed for us, his blood shed as payment and protection from God's judgment. Jesus is the perfect Passover lamb, the sacrifice given once for all. In Revelation 5, John writes, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. That was the state of things last Thursday night. No Passover lamb yet offered was sufficient. But then John goes on. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll. And I saw a lamb looking as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransom people for God. In both these examples, Noah and the ark, Exodus and the Passover, we see God as the master storyteller at work. He includes specific details and symbols to reveal himself in the person of Jesus. The beauty and intricacy of Scripture's story reflects the glory and creativity of our great God. So let's respond by thanking God for the story of Scripture, for the manifestation of the Word in the person of Christ, in whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Him, in Christ, is life, 
and that life is the light of man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross.